Again, welcome to all, especially visitors. Uh, If you would turn your attention now to John 14. This is the fourth book in the New Testament. John 14, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. You know, when you think about the main branches of the Christian church, not just in the United States, but around the whole world, you basically have three main branches. You have uh, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism. And you typically, of those three, think about the, the differences, the disagreements. And there are distinctives. If, if you're one, you're not, you're not the other. But there is actually something that all three of those you know, major tributaries uh, share if they call themselves Christian, and that is this very, very old document called the Nicene Creed. And it had its beginnings at the Council of Nicaea, and that was an old, old, old Christian gathering in 325 A.D. So when we say old, we mean not just 1800s old, we mean over a millennium and a half ago, the Nicene Creed. And the interesting thing about that creed that all these different traditions, if I can put it that way, that we share is this creed is structured around the Trinity, around the Trinity. It talks about the Father, and then it talks about the Son, and then it talks about the Holy Spirit. It makes it very clear that there is only one God, but this one God exists at the same time as three persons. And when you get toward the end of the creed and it talks about the Holy Spirit, It says, the Holy Spirit, who, with the Father and the Son, the other two persons, is together worshipped and glorified. And that's really great. It's saying that that this third person, who is God, God the Holy Spirit, He is not like just one-third God, or He's not like God Jr. I don't want to be irreverent here, or, or God's assistant, but He is just as fully and powerfully and gloriously God as the Father and the Son. And I I will not pretend to be able to explain to you all the ins and outs of the Trinity. It's just, I mean, the Trinity will quickly take you to the very threshold of your understanding. And the word Trinity is never in the Bible, but the term... And the truths behind it, the raw material for that is just all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, or Genesis to Maps, as I said one time, uh, all, all through the Bible. And you're going to see all three persons, especially the third person, the Holy Spirit, in this text that I'm about to read. But I want you to think about this before I read it. Remember, remember, remember that as we're in these, these next chapters for the next few weeks... It's what's called uh, the farewell discourse. These are the last things, really, that that Jesus teaches before He's crucified. It is the night before He will be crucified. It is hours away from His arrest where He's handed over to the authorities. And think about this before we read this. Think about that with His closest friends that He has invested in for three years... I mean, given everything to, who are about to forsake him. Now, we usually lay that more at the feet of Peter, that Peter ran off and, and denied him. Jesus said, 
you'll all abandon me. Hours away from his arrest, the night before his crucifixion, he's with these friends he's invested in for years who are about to forsake him in a way. And he is going at length to explain to them how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will never forsake them. John 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we would say to you before we go any further that there is so much here that just one phrase uh, from this text could occupy our thoughts really forever. So we would especially pray this morning that the very thing that you want us to hear, the very thing that our hearts need, that you would show us and make clear to us, that you would apply it, put it deep within us, 
And we ask this, uh, unable to do that for ourselves, but ask you who can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A project that I feel like um, I am working on all the time is the project, the ongoing project, of trying to figure out Greenville. And, you know, actually, when we do the foundations class here, that's our class of who we are as a church and what we believe and what we're trying to shoot for as a church, that one of the things we talk about is, on the one hand, we don't want to minister to people in a cookie-cutter way and assume that everybody in this room is alike, so, you know, just go through book one, book two, book three, because we're all alike, and that's the program. Everybody in here is different. And so ministry to any of you would be somewhat different. But every city or town is different. And to really love a particular place, you need to try to get to know the place. And I would want to do that anywhere I lived. I want you to be doing it right now. And a, a recurring reality that has surfaced is I've picked people's brains about Greenville. And this one surfaced pretty early on because when I first got here, I was kind of a blank slate. I didn't know hardly anything about Greenville. 90-degree learning curve. And so I just would get together with folks, especially those who've lived here a long time, and pick their brains. Now, when you ask somebody, what's great about Greenville? Man, sit back and listen. I mean, you'll get the Chamber of Commerce speech. and it's, I mean, it is. It's great. It's a, it's a really unique place. But the interesting question to me is, what's hard about Greenville? Or what do you not necessarily like about Greenville? And I noticed that those who are from here will answer differently from those who have moved here. And overwhelmingly, what transplants to Greenville will say is that it's much harder to break in than I thought it would be. Not meaning that I can't find work. I mean, usually if somebody relocated here, it was probably for work. Love the amenities. The downtown always figures, looms largely in what I love about Greenville. But, but overwhelmingly, the answer for those who lived somewhere else and moved here is very friendly, but hard to make real friends. And it's interesting that what, when people say that, what they're bumping into is, even if you're from here, something that everyone in this room has experienced, and it might have been in grade school, it might have been in college, it might have been when you started in a new workplace, it might have been when you moved here. It's when you come into a new situation and you quickly perceive that there is a circle. There is already in place a circle of a certain amount of relationships, and I am not in it. Now, here's the interesting thing about circles. On the one hand, they show something that's amazing about human beings, and then they show something that's a problem with human beings. What's amazing is that when you have a circle, what that's actually showing is that human beings, be they religious or not, they bear the image of God. Wherever they are, we bear the image of God for all our problems and and failures. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, more than the mountains, more than galaxies. We're the pinnacle. Only we are made in His image. And as someone once said, when God made human beings, He didn't say, 
I'm going to make them in my image. He said this mysterious thing. Let us make man in our image. One image. Not multiple images. But there's an us-ness to it. And that when you have two or three, or if your cup runneth over, four or five people that you just really connect with and resonate. You know you have their love, and they know that they have your love. And if you've got them in the same town, it's really a precious thing. That's bearing the image of God. That resonates with us. But what it shows about us is that our tendency, if we have that circle, is to kind of take hands with one another, metaphorically, and turn inward. That we turn inward toward one another and sort of say, isn't it great that we have this? And everyone else is on the outside. Now again, I don't mean this irreverently or flippantly, but the ultimate circle is the Trinity. The ultimate circle is the Trinity. And in ways that quickly take us in, beyond the limit of our understanding into mystery, before there were any molecules, before, and we can't picture that. I mean, when I said that, you probably pictured black space. Black space has molecules. But when there was no thing, there was God, one God, Not a God divided into thirds, but this God existed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He always had and He always will, but within Himself is this plurality. And the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. Perfect love, perfect connection, so much so that really the only way to describe it is they are one. Now here's the thing, that circle at the creation, rather than completely turn in on itself, it said, let us, it's a mystery, this one God saying that, let us make a kind of creature that has never been made and involve him. Let's bring him into this circle. Now, he will still be a creature. There's always that distinction between the creator and the creature. But he will be brought into the circle of our love. And so, here's what I want to look at. I want to look at, just briefly, what the Trinity had and what the Trinity did. What the Trinity had, what the Trinity did. Now, really, we've just been describing what the Trinity had. And we don't know a lot about this. Because the Bible starts with God being there already and then making everything. And so you don't get what's before Genesis. But you know what? A couple of the best little glimpses behind the veil that we ever get are actually in the Gospel of John just a few chapters after this. And it's John chapter 17, and it's when Jesus is praying by Himself, and it's just in a few little phrases that you get a little glimpse behind the veil. 
He's praying to the Father, and man, these chapters, this farewell discourse from 13, next few chapters, and this prayer in chapter 17, if, if, you, if you look up the word Father, Jesus is just saying, Father, Father. I mean, His heart is gushing out. And in John 17, He says, I want to return to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And it's just, it's awe-inspiring. You've got this man that if we saw, if we had footage, it would be a Jewish peasant man kneeling in a garden who, according to the Scriptures, looked like nothing special. Pass him in the market, not even think another thing about it. And he is saying that before the creation existed, that you and I loved one another, I had glory with you, and you had glory with me. It's just a glimpse. Okay, that is the backdrop for Genesis, of God saying, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, here's the question. If that's what the Trinity had, who introduced treachery into the circle? Uh, who introduced hatred Who introduced a breach? We did. Adam and Eve first did, but we have as well. To betray the very God whose image we bear as the pinnacle of creation. So what did the Trinity do? And they had this, again, if we can put it this way, the ultimate circle. What did they do? And I would start that answer by saying negatively, what did they not do? What did they not do? They did not forsake the traitors. Look look at the text again. Just listen to some of these verses. Now, we're accustomed to Jesus saying kind things. He can say severe things sometimes too, but we're accustomed to Him saying kind things. But think about it. He just washed the feet of people who are about to flee when He needs His friends most. And He knows that. He told them that they would. And they said, no, 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 not us. And look in verse 18. He's saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Why would you want to comfort people who are about to let you down? Because that is who God is. Look in verse 27. St. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. His friends should have been gathered around him, holding him, saying, you are about to do the hardest thing anyone ever has done or ever will do. How can we help you? But he's washed their feet and he is assuring them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to give you peace that the world can't give you. And then the the, the clincher, look in verse 23. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. I mean, if you have ever been betrayed, if somebody has ever wounded you deeply, maybe, maybe you're able to forgive them. Maybe you're able to be civil to them but would you want to live with them? I mean, usually where you have the most strained relationships in a home 
is where you feel that you have that present, is that I'm living with the very person who betrayed me. And you've got Jesus saying, listen guys who are about to pretend like you've never met me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And my Father and I will come to you and we'll live with you. He is not throwing them under the bus. All right, so what does the Trinity do? Again, we just kind of snapshots here, but I want to look at the Father, the Son, and especially the Holy Spirit. What does the Father do? What's He doing for the failures? Look in verse 31. Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. I do as the Father has commanded me. Now think about that. That's true in general that Jesus does His Father's will. He he was the one man that ever did. He always obeyed God His Father. But in particular, what could we say? Is it's as Jesus is not only obeying God His whole life, but now as He's moving toward the crucifixion, why is He doing that? Because the Father commanded it. And again, there's a mystery here, because on the one hand, Jesus says, nobody makes me lay down my life. I lay down my life because I want to. But on the other hand, it was the Father's commanded will. And it is really important to see that, because if we're not careful, what, I think what can happen in our minds is we can think, okay, here's God the Father, and He's kind of the Old Testament God, flare-ups, anger, you know, the earth might open up and drop some sinners in, and boy, you won't be seeing them anymore. And uh, wrath, and kind of like, you know, dad is off, off the handle, and then you've got this sort of older brother who's reasonable and loving, kind of goes to bat for us, and, and that's Jesus, and he kind of comes and goes, okay, look, look, I'll handle it, and you know, dad's flying off the handle, but he'll calm down, and I'll just kind of work it. It is the Father. It is the Father who commanded that the very people who disobeyed me be redeemed. So that not only I can tolerate them, way beyond that, that our love might be redeemed, that the love between us might be rescued, that we can live with one another as we're supposed to. That originated with the Father. What about the Son? I mean, there He is in His humanity with them. Look in verse 30. This is a scary verse. He says, I will no longer talk much with you. And, and if Jesus was your rabbi and your stability, that would have turned your stomach upside down. No wonder he's telling them, don't be afraid. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And what does that mean? Who is the ruler of the world? That's a biblical reference to Satan. Not in visible form, but His scheme is coming our way. And and that really drives home why this last phrase of this chapter is important. Rise. Let us go from here. Why is that important? When they stepped out of that upper room, forward motion. Toward what? Arrest 
kangaroo court, mock trial, torture, death. Jesus initiates, I'm walking out the door. And why does He do that? Because not only does God the Father love sinners, not only does God the Father love these men who keep making mistakes, who keep letting Jesus down, but God the Son loves them. He's going to go do for them what they cannot do for themselves. I've lived the life that you can't live. I'm going to give you credit for it, but now I will bear the curse that I don't want you to bear. Let's go from here. Now that would be beyond our wildest dreams to just have that. But then what does Jesus say? Is that the Father and the Son do something else. Listen to how He describes them doing this together. Uh, Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Then look down in verse Uh, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Uh, This term Helper is hard to translate, but it basically means something like a cross between a defense attorney, an advocate, and a very strong encourager who comes alongside you. It's not just somebody handling data for you, but it's someone running interference for you, your advocate, but also alongside you to comfort you and to strengthen you, make you strong. How does the Holy Spirit make God's people strong? We could do a whole series on that, but two things that are in this text. First thing is this. Look in verse 26, just read this. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How did the apostles remember all this stuff that Jesus said? Because if they didn't remember, we wouldn't have the Gospels. We wouldn't have some of the epistles that are based on their eyewitness account. How did they remember all these things? He says the Holy Spirit is going to remind you. This happened in... I mean, this is why John can write a book with this many chapters. He says at the beginning of John, early in Jesus' ministry, one day Jesus is by the temple, He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. People just flipped out. It took 46 years to build this thing. How can you do it in three days? And John says, after his resurrection, they remembered what he said. That's what he was talking about. Now, even though that primarily fleshes itself out with the apostles, listen to what Jesus is going to say in just a couple of chapters. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, this is chapter 16, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify, this is very important, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. I heard someone say this, and I'm going to repeat it because I agree with it. The third person of the Trinity probably does not like it for us to put a giant, let's say, dove on a church 
or a bill. I have no idea if any churches have that, okay? So I don't have anybody in the crosshairs when I say that. But the reason is because the Holy Spirit does not draw attention to Himself. And He's not an it, He's a He. But it is His glory, as Jesus said, to direct you to Jesus and to give to you what is Jesus's, what Jesus has to give. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When He reminds you of things, it's not just, remember, don't tell lies. He is pointing you to Christ always. But the other thing is this. Look in verse 15, because if we don't say this, this could actually be discouraging. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Why does Jesus keep saying that in this context? If we're not careful, the way we'll read that is, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me. And that'll, tra- that'll change into, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you. No. You don't keep God's commandments to get God's love. God's people keep His commandments because they have God's love. And what Jesus is essentially saying is, it is the Holy Spirit who's not only going to change you to obey me in a way you never have, but where's that obedience going to come from? Love for me. It's easy to do things for someone you love. The Holy Spirit is going to change you from the inside out to love me so that you will keep my commandments. Now, what do we do with that? I want to end with this. For those of you here this morning who are not Christians, and you're hearing this and you're thinking, so I'm supposed to love Jesus. How do I do that? I mean, you know... We don't do that with people like, well, I'm just going to fall in love with you. Click. You can do loving things towards someone, but I mean, you can't just will yourself to feel loving towards someone. But I would say this to you, if, if you are not a Christian, if you're not sure what you are, and I would also say it to you if you are a Christian, how does the Holy Spirit get you to love Jesus? I, I had a friend who told me, that when he got to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, that the painting that just stayed with him was one of Rembrandt's, excuse me, uh, Van Gogh's self-portraits. He said, the, he said I, my mouth was open when I looked at it because the only places I'd ever seen the self-portrait of Van Gogh were just plates in books, so it was just, just two dimensions. But when I saw the painting in the Metropolitan Museum... It's three-dimensional. There's so many layers of paint on there that like, there are even parts in his beard that cast shadows. In the, I couldn't take my eyes off it. And he has brought that up with me two or three times. Why did he fall in love with the portrait? Because he saw it as it actually is. And whether you are not a Christian, or you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for years and years, our big problem is that we do not love Christ. And you know what the good news is? It is the Holy Spirit's delight not to say, well, you don't love Christ? Well, you need to love Christ. Go love Christ. 
It is, it is the delight of the Holy Spirit to say, here's how I'm going to get you to love Christ. I'm going to let you see Him as He really is. And if, you're, if you are a Christian and your love has grown cold, join the crowd. And ask the Helper to help you. Show me Jesus. It's not that I have to will myself to love Him more. He is lovely. Just let me see Him rightly. In your Word. In one another. Last thing though. What does it mean to be godly? To be godly is to be like God. And what God is like are three persons who could have held hands forever and looked in and had this great triangle that no one else ever touched. And it was the glory of the Trinity to keep holding hands and turn around, create a world, populate it, and keep looking at the rebels. And I would say to you, who have a circle in Greenville, or I would say to you who are in a community group, our friendships or our community groups, they are most godly when you've got a great thing going on, but rather than turn in on yourselves, you keep holding hands, and we look out, and we figure out how can we bring others into, into the love that we share. Because that's what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did with us. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, redeeming Son, powerful Spirit, our prayer would be that You would help us, we who need such help, by showing us Christ as He really is. Would You draw us to Him? Would You woo us to Him? Holy Spirit, would You woo the churches of our city to Him? And in loving Him, that we might obey Him and speak freely of Him. We ask this in His name. Amen.